What's one of the first recommendations your doctor tells you when you're sick? Get plenty of rest, bed rest. In my house, that often turns into couch rest, so I can cuddle with my dogs and fall asleep with a movie in the background, usually a horror movie. Bed rest, or as it was originally called, rest cure, was first used by a Philadelphia physician in the late 1800s, neurologist Silas Weir Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell specialized in neurology after earning his medical degree from Jefferson Medical College in 1850. Rest cure was highly recommended for the treatment of physical and emotional exhaustion, believed to be triggered by the stresses of living in a big city, working long hours, crowded streets, the constant hustle of city living. None of that sounds all too different than what many of us endure today. Mitchell treated patients suffering from hysteria, and you can probably guess many of those patients were female. It was so simple in the 19th and early 20th centuries to label a woman as an hysteric. A wife decides she's had enough of her husband's shit and won't do what he says. Well then, she's hysterical. A woman who perhaps enjoys the company of men and is unmarried, she's hysterical too. Let's soothe them with the rest cure, which sounds more comforting than it really was. Rest cure was solitude, no stimulation, no engagement with others. You could be confined for weeks or months this way while being fed a high-fat diet, something Dr. Silas Mitchell believed made people healthier. By now you're thinking he sounds like many other physicians of his time, using the limited knowledge and remedies that were available and subscribing to the philosophy that if it didn't kill you, it might actually cure you. I realize I may not be painting the most favorable portrait of Dr. Silas Mitchell, and that's a little unfair for a few reasons. Like his contemporary, Silas Weir Mitchell was a product of the times in which he practiced medicine. The 18th and 19th centuries were periods of wonderful discoveries, yet obviously still so far away from what we know about the human condition, not only now, but 50 to 100 years ago. And Dr. Mitchell was a leading neurologist in Philadelphia. He coined the term phantom limb through his work and research with amputees. It's the subject of one of his books, titled The Autobiography of a Quack and Other Stories, published in 1905. Although it's called an autobiography, it really is a work of fiction, inspired by Dr. Mitchell's work and written by Mitchell himself. He wrote numerous nonfiction educational tomes, but he also fashioned himself somewhat of an artist, and Dr. Mitchell's medium was the written word. The Autobiography of a Quack is a collection of five short stories, one titled The Case of George Dedlow. I read Dr. Mitchell's book, and this particular story is rather gruesome. George Dedlow was a young man working to obtain his medical degree when he availed himself as a physician for the Civil War before he actually received his degree. Dedlow was separated from his company. He was alone in an area of the country unfamiliar to him, far away from Philadelphia. He traveled at night, and during his journey, he was attacked. He was shot in both arms. His left arm was a clean shot, but the right arm, the bullet caused such severe nerve damage and shattered the bone. There was only one option, amputation. When Dedlow asked who will administer the ether, he was told there is none. George Dedlow faced more perils during the war. He was shot in both legs. He woke up in a field hospital realizing his legs had been removed mid-thigh. He didn't believe it because he felt his feet. In fact, in one foot, he felt pain. 
Dr. Silas Mitchell used the story of George Dedlow to explain the concept of phantom limbs, the pain one feels even after they've lost a limb, and treatments he used to aid not only in the physical recovery, but the neurological and emotional recovery as well. And you can rest assured, rest cure was prescribed somewhere. Why have I decided to tell you about Victorian neurologist Dr. Silas Mitchell? Well, while my friends Jerry and Tracy from Hillbilly Horror Stories were in Philadelphia, they bought me a wonderful book, The Big Book of Pennsylvania Ghost Stories. It's over 300 pages of ghost stories from all over the Keystone State, right here in Philadelphia, plus central Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh and other parts west, Gettysburg, Northeast PA. And while there were stories in the book that I already knew, there are many I'd never heard before. One of these stories was about Dr. Silas Mitchell who one dark and stormy night heard a knock on his door. On the other side stood a little girl who begged for his help. Her mother was very ill, and the little girl feared she would not last the night. Dr. Mitchell grabbed his bag and followed the little girl through the narrow streets of Philadelphia to what authors Mark Nesbitt and Patty Wilson called a derelict part of the city until they arrived at a small room the girl shared with her mother. Inside was a woman Dr. Mitchell recognized. Apparently, she'd once been his maid, and in the years since he'd last seen her, she'd changed considerably. The doctor realized this woman was gravely ill with pneumonia. He assured her he could cure her. He started a fire to warm her and give her medicine that would make her well again. But where was her daughter? In his rush to treat her mother, he'd lost track of the little girl who braved the cold wearing just a shawl and begged for his help. The woman told Dr. Mitchell her daughter died a month earlier. She kept her daughter's red shawl in remembrance of her child. It was in a cabinet in the small room. Dr. Mitchell thought her words must have been the ravings of a fever, the illness affecting her mind. He'd seen and spoken to her daughter. She led him all the way to this room. Although, along the journey, Dr. Mitchell had lost sight of the little girl a few times. When he wasn't sure where to turn, the little girl seemed to reappear and showed him the way. But now she was nowhere to be found. The doctor looked inside the cabinet, and just as her mother said, there was the red shawl that belonged to her daughter. The very shawl the little girl wore when she stood on the other side of Dr. Mitchell's door earlier that evening. As I read these haunted tales in the big book of Pennsylvania ghost stories, I wondered who these people were. Were they actual residents of our state, people from history with stories of their own, besides the short haunted tales told in Nesbitt and Wilson's book? So I went digging to find the history behind these hauntings. And that's what I'll be sharing with you today as we inch ever so closer to Halloween. Dim the lights and burn a few candles as we prepare to get spooky with one another. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this twisted journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. Ah! 
Laurel Hill Cemetery is filled with prominent burials, remarkable monuments and sculptures. Yet there is one particular sculpture that pulls at your heart more than others. It emits feelings of such sadness and longing. It's become known as the Weeping Mother. High above the Schuylkill River stands a sculpture from the 1850s, which has been softened and worn over time. It's the figure of a young woman. She's wrapped in a robe or a gown. Her feet are bare, and she holds two small children in her arms close to her chest. Her head hangs down in sorrow over their small faces. There's a fence around this area of the sculpture because when I say it sits high above the Schuylkill River, it almost seems as if it's atop a cliff at the northwest end of Laurel Hill Cemetery. There are stretches of monuments and mausoleums at Laurel Hill that make me pause because even with the fencing, there is a drop-off to Kelly Drive or the river below, and the location of the Weeping Mother, while beautiful, is precarious. Visitors to Laurel Hill Cemetery claim they've heard the sounds of a woman crying in this area, and they believe it's coming from the statue of this woman and her babies. Legends say she and her children died along a nearby stretch of the river. That's why this spot was chosen for their final resting place. But there is much more to this story. Henry Domchowski emigrated to Philadelphia from Lithuania in 1852. As a young man, he fought for Poland's independence against Russia. The Polish were unsuccessful in their efforts, and those who fought against the Russians were forced to live in hiding or risk imprisonment or even execution. Henry was eventually caught. He was sent to prison for six years. After being released in the early 1840s, he lived in France in exile, where he studied sculpting and eventually made his way to the city of brotherly love. Here in Philadelphia, Henry Domchowski's work was respected. He made a bit of a name for himself as a sculptor, although he changed that name to Saunders when he arrived here in America. His work was featured at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in their annual art exhibits. Life seemed to be going well for Henry Saunders. In a letter he wrote to a friend in Washington, D.C. in September 1853, Henry said, and this is a quote, he took an important step in a man's life. He got married. Henry married Bavarian immigrant Helena Schaff, who was just 25 years old while Henry was 43. Helena was a pianist, and Henry bragged to his friend she was the greatest pianist in all of Philadelphia. Beautiful and talented though she may have been, young Helena suffered health issues. In February 1855, Helena and Henry endured a horrible tragedy. She was pregnant. Their first child was due in just a few days. But for reasons Henry blamed on his wife's fragile condition, their baby passed away before he was born. In another letter to his friend, Henry described a cruel operation his wife endured and said, thank God at least one life was saved. Henry and Helena were hopeful they'd have a family. She recovered physically, but a loss like that is so great it never really goes away, and it further weakened her spirit. Two years later, in 1857, their hopes were restored, as Helena was pregnant, but history repeated itself. This time, both Helena and her unborn son perished days before the baby was due. Henry was consumed with grief. 
In another letter to his best friend in July 1857, he wrote the following words. I washed her body with my tears and the pain in my heart will be with me for a long, long time. I thought I would go mad seeing her dead and without hope. After this cruel loss, the only thing that is left for me is to give the rest of my life to her memory and spend my time while shaping this memory into a proper monument. Henry spent 18 months sculpting the statue that stands in Laurel Hill Cemetery, the beautiful young woman holding her babies in her arms overlooking the river. Although the book I've been reading said the boys died in a boating accident on the Schuylkill, the truth about the weeping mother is much sadder than the tale told in the big book of Pennsylvania ghost stories. Henry struggled to make a living in Philadelphia after the death of his wife. He was a talented sculptor, but he wasn't able to get grand commissions. Before she died, Helena earned $1,000 a year. That's about $27,000 in today's money. And without her income, sales of his smaller works weren't enough to sustain him. He finally returned to Lithuania in 1861. The sculpture that stands atop the grave of Helena Domchowski Saunders and her sons has inscriptions on each side, although not all of them are legible. One side is English and reads, We live in deeds, not years, in thought, not breath. In feelings, not figures on the dial, we should count time by heartthrobs. He most lives who thinks most, feels the noblest, acts the best. Another side features an inscription in Polish, which I ran through Google Translator, the accuracy to which I cannot attest, but the translation I got back read, Friend, what all is lost. The most expensive in the world, fatherland, parents, friends, wife, children, my Helena. The other inscriptions are far too weathered. They can't be deciphered, although it's believed one was written in Latin. While the children in her arms weren't twins, the name given to the statue by the artist, her husband, was Mother and Twins. In Mark Nesbitt and Patty Wilson's book, The Big Book of Pennsylvania Ghost Stories, they share a tale of a photographer who was taking pictures at Laurel Hill Cemetery. She'd brought her young son with her, and while she was distracted setting up her equipment, the little boy grew ever closer to the edge of the grounds. A woman's sobs caught her attention, and this photographer claimed she saw a figure dash past her. She looked up and ran to her son, pulling him back from the railing. It was then that this photographer realized she was standing next to the statue of the weeping mother. In their book, the authors refer to Henry's wife as Mary Samuels, pondering if it was her spirit returned to the land of the living. But records from the Polish-American Historical Society, as well as Henry's own letters to friends during his life in Philadelphia, confirm the woman after whom that hauntingly beautiful statue was modeled was Helena Schaff, a beautiful young immigrant from Bavaria who lived in the same boarding house as Henry when he first moved to Philadelphia. If you visit her grave in Section 7 in the northwest corner of Laurel Hill Cemetery, it's Helena's sobs you may hear if you listen closely.
Birdsboro is a small Pennsylvania town between Pottstown and Reading. It sits a little over an hour northwest of Philadelphia. According to authors Nesbitt and Wilson, there is a house in the Birdsboro area where the spirit of a woman from long ago wanders the hallways. She can sometimes be seen by passersby. This is the house of Lizzie Lincoln. When I read this story, there was a sense of familiarity about it, as if I'd read a similar story about a house in another part of Pennsylvania. Long ago, although no dates were given, Lizzie and her husband lived in a beautiful brick home built sometime in the mid-1800s. It wasn't just the pair who lived there in the house on Lincoln Road. A young woman lived in the home and served as their maid. Lizzie discovered her husband had an affair with this woman. He didn't deny it. In fact, not only did he admit his affair, he told Lizzie they'd fallen in love, and he wanted a divorce. Shocking, especially for the time when this happened, probably more than 150 years ago. Lizzie screamed at her husband. She thrashed and pounded her fists at him. In their tussle, Lizzie's husband pushed her away. She fell down the stairs and died as a result of the fall. Lizzie's spirit never left that house on Lincoln Road, the home she loved so very much, the home where she believed a beautiful future awaited her. But instead, what awaited her was an untimely death. The house was abandoned after that, except for the ghost of Lizzie Lincoln. The house on Lincoln Road became something of a legend, the sort of spot where kids dare one another to go up and knock on the door, or even worse, open the door never knowing if they'd see Lizzie's ghost. But according to Charles Abrams III, a former radio disc jockey and author from Exeter Township, Pennsylvania, there is no such person as Lizzie Lincoln. In a January interview with Michelle Lynch from the Reading Eagle newspaper, Charles explained there was once a young woman who lived in the house in question. Her name was Elizabeth. Based on his research, Charles Adams believed she was a housemaid or a caregiver, who he said died of natural causes in the house. In his book, Ghost Stories of Berks County, Charles Adams does share accounts of paranormal activity in this house from the late 1970s. The owners at that time experienced doors opening and closing on their own, lights that would turn on by themselves, and what the owners claimed was a mist which they often saw floating down the staircase. But none of these events were attributed to Lizzie Lincoln because she didn't exist. Today, the house is abandoned. The windows are covered with wooden boards. For a time in the 80s, it was actually run as a haunted attraction. And it seems that's when the story of Lizzie Lincoln was born. Maybe those owners knew about the paranormal activity there a decade before, the house sits on Lincoln Road. One plus one equals the legend of a scorned woman whose ghost haunts this beautiful old home in the woods. I found an interesting anecdote while researching the history behind the ghost of Lizzie Lincoln and the house on Lincoln Road, believed to have been built sometime between 1825 and 1850. At one time, it was owned by a man named Alexander Boardman, who was the inventor of the boardwalk in Atlantic City in 1870 which inspired boardwalks all over the Jersey Shore. Mm -hmm. 
Pennsylvania is filled with areas which some people might call ghost towns. Perhaps they're not completely abandoned, but they're communities which were decimated when the coal mines and steel mills went out of business. Some towns managed to stay afloat, finding other industries or tourism to draw residents and visitors. But there's a little area called Scotia, just a few miles west of State College, Pennsylvania, which in the early 1900s became a ghost town. The area was mined for iron ore that was used in steel mills. It was logged to create charcoal, any natural resource people could get their hands on in the 1800s and early 1900s were carved out of Scotia. This area eventually became known as the Scotia Barrens. The Barrens sit in an area called a microclimate, which means it's always cooler there than the areas that surround it, sometimes as much as up to 30 degrees cooler. There's so much about this area that makes it unique and unusual. The temperatures support plant species not found in nearby areas. And then there's the ruins of the old mines and the abandoned railroad. Scotia Barrens is part of Pennsylvania State Game Lands. It's protected by the Pennsylvania Game Commission, but it's open to hikers, runners, tourists, anyone who wants to take a walk along the old abandoned railroad or snap photos of the ruins, which today are just concrete frames of old buildings covered in graffiti that make it look like a modern art installation in the middle of nowhere. Scotia Barrens is also known for the legend of the shadow figure. In the 80s, some local men were deer hunting at night, searching for deer in the Scotia Barrens with high-powered flashlights. These men claim a large, dark shadow moved across the beam of light. It was featureless and moved towards them. According to the Big Book of Pennsylvania Ghost Stories, the shadow figure that haunts the Barrens not far from State College is the ghost of a farmhand who was fired for being lazy. He argued with the man who'd hired him. He wanted what he thought he was owed, but the farmer wasn't having any of it. So one night, this man saw the farmer's wife, a woman named Hilda Bodis, and in an act of vengeance, he assaulted and murdered her. This man was swiftly caught, tried, convicted, and hanged for murder. Legend has it he was buried in unconsecrated ground. His crimes denied him a decent Christian burial. And as a result, his soul wanders the barrens. Hilda Bodice was a real person. She was found murdered on Tuesday, October 18th, 1910. Her throat had been cut from ear to ear. Her husband wasn't a farmer, nor had he hired her murderer. He owned a merry-go-round in another area of Pennsylvania, and about a month before his wife's death, died as a result of suicide after suffering severe depression. Hilda's murderer was quickly found. His name was Bert Delige. In his confession, he told police he was sorry for what he'd done. Bert said he was out of his mind drunk, didn't even realize what he was doing. There were no mentions of prior connections between Bert Delige and the Bodice family in any reports from 1910 about Hilda's murder. The story of a revenge killing to punish her husband is just a local legend. Local papers offered an account of Bert Delige's last moments on earth. 
He was hanged on Tuesday, April 25, 1911. It was reported he walked briskly up the steps to the gallows. He had accepted his fate. Just before the noose was placed around his neck, he told the sheriff he wanted to speak. But none of these old papers reporting Bert Delige's death, the Lewisburg Chronicle, the Lewisburg Journal, the Belfont Republican, actually shared his last words. Only that what he had to say took a long time. This wasn't Bert's first run-in with the law or his first crime against another person. In 1905, Bert Delige accidentally shot a young boy named Ralph Williams, who was just 13 years old. Bert had just left the Williams' home in Scotia to go hunting when Ralph saw him from his schoolyard and called out to him. Apparently, Bert Delige put his gun up to his shoulder in a gesture pretending to shoot at Ralph, but forgot his gun was cocked. The bullet hit Ralph Williams in the leg, and he died as a result of blood loss before his family could get him to a nearby hospital. There were conflicting reports in the week after Ralph's death that Bert Delige's actions may have been intentional. One paper stated there were other boys in addition to Ralph in the schoolyard that day, and none of them were waving at Bert. They were calling out mean, insulting taunts because Bert Delige was African-American. Some witnesses claim Bert aimed his rifle at the group of boys, but either way, he hadn't intended to shoot Ralph Williams or any of the other children. Bert Delige was arrested and charged with murder on October 27, 1905. Just three months later, in January 1906, he was found guilty of second-degree murder. So how was he out of jail four years later? Getting drunk. So drunk, in fact, that when he saw Hilda Baudis walking along a country road, he beat her and murdered her. I don't know. I scoured old newspapers between 1905 and 1911, but there was nothing about his release from prison or how he spent his time between these killings. There isn't much more about the shadow figure seen around the Scotia Barrens, other than a few vague mentions of hikers reporting a similar dark mist as the one reported by those deer hunters decades ago. Bert Delige was buried in that area. Because of his crimes and the location of his final resting place, it's a likely conclusion people believe this meandering shape is his spirit. Some people say the spirit of Bert Delige wanders the area filled with remorse, looking for an opportunity to atone for his sins, but forever unable to find peace. The Big Book of Pennsylvania Ghost Stories is an interesting read. Some stories are filled with a little more history than others. As I'm reading it, I skip the ones with which I'm familiar, like Eastern State Penitentiary, Balleroy Mansion, Ray Myers Hollow, also known as Hex Hollow. I'm jumping around in the book, finding stories unfamiliar to me, and it will probably take me a year to finish this because of my desire to learn about the history behind the hauntings. When and why did these legends spring up? Are they based on a tragic event or real people who lived here in the Keystone State? As you heard in the stories I shared with you today, very little history about the people or locations in these hauntings was included in the book. The history that was featured, while it was certainly told in a way that might raise the hair on the back of your neck, it wasn't necessarily accurate. Whether that was done with intent, I certainly can't say. 
but it is an enjoyable read. Going back to the first story I shared, while I learned a great deal about Dr. Silas Mitchell, especially his rest cure, I didn't find any reference to the story of the ghost girl he met in the 1800s. That story has a ring of familiarity to it. I'm sure if you shook the trees a little, you'd find stories like this one around the country, probably even around the world. Someone seeks the help of a physician late at night, begging for assistance. The physician rushes to the patient's side, only to discover the person who led him there was never really there at all. That's got all the makings of a great ghost story, a dark and stormy night, a sense of urgency, a protagonist who blindly follows someone they don't know, and then that someone disappears. Truth be told, I don't believe the story of the little ghost girl, but I did enjoy reading it. I could picture her little red shawl. I could see her darting down narrow alleys in Philadelphia with Dr. Mitchell trailing along behind her. I'm looking forward to digging into the history behind more of these Pennsylvania ghost legends, and you know I'll be sharing that history with all of you. If you're interested in reading the big book of Pennsylvania ghost stories, my friends bought it for me in the gift shop at Eastern State Penitentiary. It's available on Amazon and paperback, hardcover, and Kindle. It's also available on Barnes & Noble, and the ebook is available on Google Play. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.